Our Old Testament reading is from Genesis 6. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its width, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubic above and put the door of the ark on its side, Made it, make it with lower, second, and third decks. For my part, I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which the breath of life, everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on ground according to its kind, Two of every kind shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every kind of food that is eaten and store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the air also, male and female, to keep her, their kind alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wife went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. The rain fell on the earth 40 days, and 40 nights. 
On the very same day, Noah with his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons entered the ark. They and every wild animal of every kind and all domestic animals of every kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every bird of every kind, every bird, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swam, swarm on the earth, and all human beings. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground, human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. And the water swelled on the earth for 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Our gospel reading is from Matthew 24. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words <clears throat> will not pass away. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Do you pray with me? Our God, we need your help, and we ask for it now. Would you be with us as we sit with these words of your scriptures, and would you bless us so that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and you are our redeemer. So bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the Noah story is a hard text, and we picked it for a reason, um, because it's a hard text. Now, let me just say a word about the series we're doing this summer. We're calling it Bible Stories Mixtape. Now, if you're my age, back when we made cassette tapes. A mixtape is a particular kind of artifact 
that, that conveys a particular kind of love language, the ability to assemble a playlist. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll use the word playlist. That's fine. I like mixtape, personally. It, uh, it, it makes something nostalgic come alive in me. But we selected texts, stories, really, um, from the really from the Bible, most of them from the Old Testament, but we've got, we'll get to Jesus in August and do some Jesus stories too. But we really wanted a, a little tour of the Bible where we wade into some of these greatest hit stories and give them space in their context to let them maybe come back to life for us. Especially if you grew up in the church, if you've been around, or if you spend most of your time uh, reading children's Bible versions of some of these stories, um, some of the uniqueness of these stories can get lost. Some of the oomph, and in many, in many cases, some of the difficult aspects of these stories can get kind of glossed over. Because if you take a story like Noah and try to make it suitable for four-year-olds, you have to leave certain things out or you have to say them differently because this is a horrifying story, right? It's a horrifying story. And for that reason, some of us just want to avoid it altogether, or some of us want to gloss it over and tell a different version of it, or some of us are just like, I don't know what to do with that, and you just, let's just read about Jesus. And that's not a terrible strategy, to be honest with you, but we have the whole of Scripture, and God has given us the whole thing. And we in this room are adults, for the most part, and capable, I think, of wading in to some of these deeper waters. And so I think what we want to do this summer, as we go through the mixtape, as we drop down and let some of these familiar greatest hits come back to us and maybe hit us in a way that's not just an echo of the familiar stuff we've heard over and over and over, but maybe even shining some new light on certain aspects of these stories. My hope is that a couple of things will be true of us. One, I hope that we will be stirred to a new love of Jesus and how God meets us in Jesus, how God saves us in Jesus, how God answers our prayers in Jesus and answers the deep need of the world in Jesus. I'm also hopeful that this series will spark a new interest in the Bible because the Bible is fascinating. It really is. It really is. It can be long, it can be confusing, and it can be even dull sometimes when we read this, you know, just read through it on our own or whatever. We can get lost or we can feel like we don't know what to do with it. But it's really, really, really fascinating. And it's also more than fascinating. It's what God has given us. It's what God has given to the church to be our book. And so we want to spend time, actually, as we go through, not only reading these stories, not only letting them have breathing room and come to life, we also want to even reflect a little bit about what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And how do we know? What informs the way we interpret Scripture? You know, often a sermon is like the cut flowers, where you show up and you just like hear, and you don't see this, the, the watering, you don't see the growing and the planting, you don't see all of what goes behind what had to go into effect to make a bouquet of, of cut flowers. And that's a good and right and beautiful way for a sermon typically to be. But in this particular series, we want to do a little bit more of the, oh, let's, let's actually look at a little bit more of what's behind it. Um, to use a different metaphor, let's, let's, let's pop the hood and look inside the engine a little bit about what it is that's going on in this work of interpreting and applying the Bible to our lives. And where we get to the Noah story as we kick this series off is we have a couple of problems that hit us right in the face that are, that are kind of obvious right away, right? One is this problem of divine violence. 
This is a story where we get six chapters into the Bible. Like we've made it in my Bible, it's like page three. And God is already fed up with the creation project and decides to wipe it out. And does so in a violent way. And there's no nursery mural of the, the two by two zoo crews, you know, with the giraffes and donkeys and sheep and all the, the sweet animals going into the boat with the rainbow. There's no version of it that can take away the horror of all but eight people get wiped out in this story. All but eight people. And when we bypass that part, we miss something important, albeit something difficult, about this story. The other challenge is historicity, because obviously this story is about a cosmic flood, right? It's a, it depicts a destruction of the whole world. Um, one difficulty, though, is that if like, you're a geologist and you're studying what has happened on Earth over all the years, there's no evidence of anything like this ever happening. So that's a challenge. And for some reason, that's where, you know, if, if, if you find that to be a big problem, uh, some people have rejected the authority or the, or the reliability of the Bible because of those kinds of disagreements between the story of the Bible and the geological record or the fossil record or whatever. And so we want to just wait. Let's not ignore those things. Those are real. Now, I think there are really good answers for that. And there's a reason why I trust the Bible, even as I acknowledge that there's no, no record of some of these things, or the biblical narrative in many ways contradicts some of the archaeological or geological record. That's actually okay. And part of what we want to get into is why we can have confidence in God and confidence in the scriptures that God has given us exactly the Bible we're supposed to have, that it is the word of God for us. It's our rule of faith and practice. And those kinds of discrepancies shouldn't actually shake our faith at all. But they might inform the way we approach some of the interpretations of the texts. And specifically, the challenges of divine violence and historicity have to do with how those two realities come into intersection with what we believe about God, who reveals himself to us in Jesus, right? The turn the other cheek Jesus. That if someone's going to take one garment, give the other one too, right? Jesus who chooses self-sacrificial love and becomes the recipient of violence on our behalf in order to bring forth a world order of peace. Jesus who offers us this way of life that is love God, love neighbor, love your enemy. How is the God whose character is most revealed in Jesus also this God of the flood? It's a good question. It's an important question. It's easier to not ask it for many, but I think we need to ask it. And as we do, I actually think there are really good answers. And we wanna to try to get into some of that stuff over the summer as we get into this series. But it's not just what we believe about God as he's revealed to us in Jesus, right? It's also what we believe about the Bible as God's word for us for the church. See, at resurrection, scripture is central to our life. This is God's word for us. And if you look through the history of the church, anytime the church has strayed too far from a commitment to the scriptures, that story goes poorly. The church stops being 
the community that it's called to be when scripture is relegated to the edges of its life together. At the same time, though, I think what we also see is that throughout history, the church that has clung with white knuckles to all of its own conclusions has a similarly difficult storyline because it's the church that has refused to learn new things. It's the church that has refused to change its ways even when those ways needed to change. And so what we want to be here is a community that takes scripture very, very seriously, that submits to the will of God in every possible aspect of our lives, that opens up our hands and our hearts and says, God, change anything about me that you will. Lead me in your way. And also recognizes there may be something about that that we don't yet understand. Or there may be something that we've been committed to that maybe isn't quite as lined up with God's will as we thought. And so as we get into the Bible, as we start to think about, all right, how do we do this? Some of the important things that we're going to have to hold side by side are, number one, we believe in the authority of Scripture here at Resurrection, meaning, that's shorthand, by the way, for the authority of God. It's not that we think a book rules us. It's that we believe that God, the living God, is the king who has authority of heaven and earth and all, over all of us. We belong to God. And we believe that God has given the Bible to us to play a particular role in the church where God exercises his authority through his word and through his spirit. And so we recognize the Bible as uniquely authoritative for us in a way that it is special and it's not subordinated to other books. We also believe the Bible to be inspired, which means that we believe that God has himself given it to us, that in some way the source of what we have is God, right? Now our belief in that, our, our particular theology of the inspiration of scripture is what we would call organic inspiration as opposed to mechanical inspiration. These are categories theologians in the 19th and 20th century developed really nicely. Mechanical inspiration would be something akin to dictation, right? Which is more of like the, the, the theology of scripture that you would find in Islam, where the prophet Muhammad was to be a passive recipient of the revelation of God, and as a passive instrument dictated the Quran. And so, there's a, so in Islam today, the Quran cannot be translated. It's not to be interpreted, right? Because it's the direct speech of God with no human problematizing of anything of it. There, there are branches of the church today that want to treat the Bible like that, but that's like a novel, hyper-modern thing that has taken root really, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries in the Western church. Treating the Bible like it's that kind of pristine, non-human revelation of God. That's not a Christian theology of Scripture. That's a modernist theology of Scripture. And it's actually contrary to what Scripture says about itself. See, when Scripture refers to itself and it talks about the reliability of it, it its own self-attestation or witness is that it is trustworthy testimony, okay? That is if you want to go to 1 Peter, is as the human authors wrote that the Spirit carried them along like wind in their sails, that God was doing something, superintending a process by which human beings wrote what they wrote. And so organic inspiration, which is what I think a healthy Christian theology of Scripture and what we want to hold here at Resurrection, it 
it recognizes that God speaks to human beings through human beings. And in doing so, makes use of human ideas, languages, personalities, situations, even worldviews, even assumptions. And even when God speaks through ancient human beings, some of those assumptions are like, the earth is flat. Which doesn't mean God is teaching us that the earth is flat. It means God is speaking to us through a bunch of people who assume the earth is flat, who are speaking to a bunch of other people who also assume the earth is flat. And God doesn't take issue with that at that time. He simply involves their assumptions in the story that he's telling. God lets his children tell the story and inspires them to do it. And this is what the Bible is and how it's come to be, is God has superintended this process through human authors and editors over thousands of years to get this amazing book that's a collection of all different kinds of literature. We'll find history, we'll find poetry, we'll find letters, we'll find gospels, We'll find all kinds of the wisdom literature, proverbs. There's just so many different things, literary devices of all kinds being used by these authors who are speaking the truth about God and who are being used by God to communicate to us this great story of God's involvement in the world that will find its fullness and fulfillment in Jesus. And so if we wanna like tie a, a ribbon around all of this, we might say the Bible is our authoritative story that finds its fullness in Jesus. That doesn't mean it's fiction. It refers to real things in the world. Our categories of fiction and nonfiction don't always help us in understanding what is the Bible, because it's a lot older than categories like that allow. But the Bible will use theology and literary artistry and history telling to narrate a long and winding story of God's involvement in the world, of creation and rescue, and ultimately in coming to the world himself in Jesus Christ. And to tell that story, God will utilize all kinds of idioms, all kinds of metaphors and images, all kinds of ways of telling stories. In fact, the writers will tell the same histories in different ways. If you read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and the story of Israel that you find there, and then go read the book of Chronicles, which tells the same episode, they just tell it very differently. Why? How do we make sense of that? We make sense of that because this one God is telling the story to us through these human authors who over all the generations are speaking and writing into their own moment and God continues to move the story forward, first until it finds its fullness in Jesus, and now in us until Jesus comes again. So now that raises another question, though, of all these things about just, I just said a bunch of words about the Bible and introduced some theological categories, but, so, but is it clear? Is the Bible clear? It's a big question. That was a big deal in the Reformation was a doctrine called the perspicuity of Scripture, which is the central clarity that you don't need to have professionals read this to you in order to understand its central message. And I would want to absolutely affirm that, that I love that my 10-year-old daughter can open the Scriptures, she can read it by herself without help, and she can understand God's love for her in Jesus 
and that salvation is in him alone, that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And that doctrine was especially important in the Protestant Reformations in Europe, that scripture is clear and doesn't need to be you know, handled by the professionals only, but that we need to get it into the hands of the everyday people. And I think that was a beautiful and important thing that has led to a lot of good fruit. I think it's also been a mixed bag because it's not that it's clear everywhere where we no longer need assistance in making sense of it. It's that the main big point of the gospel of Jesus is something that you don't need a lot of help to understand if you just read the scriptures. But even the reformers themselves and those who are trying to put words around what they believe would recognize that not all parts of scripture are alike in themselves equally clear, but you'll come across parts that are less clear and we need to interpret those in light of those that are more clear, which of course raises the question, how do you know what you're more clear? And that's where we always default back to Jesus, who is for us the image of the invisible God, as Paul says. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, in various times and sundry ways, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son who is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus becomes the way we know. Should we make the flood story more clear or the Jesus story more clear? Jesus is our key. Jesus himself says this on the road to Emmaus with the disciples in Luke chapter 24, when he talks about how all the things in the law and the prophets and the Psalms are written about him. It's a shorthand for the whole of the Old Testament written about him. And so is the Bible clear? Yes, in the sense that any one of us could pick this book up, open it up and tell that it is about Jesus and that God meets us in Jesus. But does that mean that these stories, like the Noah and the flood story, are clear to us without any helps? And I would say maybe to some degree, but there are also a lot of things about it that we would need a lot of help for. And the reason is because it's a really old book that comes from a really old world that's really different from ours. The ways that people thought about the world were really different in a lot of ways. The languages they spoke were really different. And so we do need people who like read Hebrew. And we need people who can read other languages in the, of the ancient Near East. We need people who study these things because they'll tell us things like, hey, you know that there are a lot of other flood stories too? There are other flood stories from other civilizations that even have things like they sent birds out at the end and when they didn't come back, the floodwaters subsided. Except that those flood stories were carried out by different gods it's true. There are multiple flood stories from civilizations around the people of Israel that come from a similar time. And there are other civilizations that order even their own history of their kings in terms of before and after the flood. So it's interesting because while there's no geological record of a global flood, that's definitely true, there's actually a lot of evidence for major catastrophe floods from this part of the world. There was a massive one around like 5500 BCE through the Bosporus Strait, an area called Turkey that created what's now known as the Black Sea, it seems. And there was a civilization there where people left that area and went to other places. And as you would presume that people displaced by such a cataclysmic flood would carry in their collective memory a flood story. So one hypothesis is that the people who settled in the land of Mesopotamia might have been displaced by that. 
There's another flood around 2900 BCE, more in this region, where in this Tigris-Euphrates area, it was a massive flood that would have been horribly disruptive and very destructive of life. And so that's a little bit closer in time to the kinds of characters in the story that we're talking about here. But what the point is, is like, even scholars who would give no credence to the veracity of the biblical witness will say that this flood story does appear to be rooted in real history, that there really was a flood. We don't know exactly which one it was, but almost certainly there was a real flood that did real harm, which is why the Babylonians and the Sumerians and other civilizations around Israel all have these stories of a flood. And also, as they're talking about their flood experience, they're making sense of it according to what they believed about their gods and their world. And so you'll read, like if you read the Atrahasis myth, for example, they believed that the gods created humans to do the bad work that nobody wanted to do. So the gods created humans to be enslaved people to do the work, the dirty work. And they just got annoyed because these humans started making too much noise. And so the gods kind of freaked out and in a capricious way just were like, let's get rid of them. And they wiped them out with a flood. That's a neighboring civilization to Israel that understood the flood to be that, okay? Read the Gilgamesh episode, you'll get a little bit different coming from Babylon, where you get the other gods are having some sort of strife among themselves or the people are bothering them. And you'll get some, some hero that emerges in a thing with a boat and all of them depict a boat that not, not one of them would have been seaworthy. And this flood happens. But what's interesting for us as we read the Bible is not just that this is kind of part and parcel of the ancient world, it's that it also changes things. It does it differently. You see, the Israel's God and the Bible that comes to the people of Israel depicts a different situation. In all of them, there's something amiss in the divine realm. But you see, in Israel, they recognize one and only one God as the true Lord. Which is why when you get to the creation, if you go back to the creation story, right, it's the Lord singular who speaks into existence the heavens and the earth. You read the creation myths of other peoples, and it's all these like battles between angry gods and like somebody cuts somebody in half and the sea god belches out creation. It's, it's violent and whatever. This God of Israel from the day one has been uncontested, peerless. This God is the Lord, the one and only God worthy of worship. You see, they lived in a world where it was assumed that there were gods and you didn't want to make them mad because when they, you made them mad, bad stuff would happen. And so ancient peoples all over the place lived lives of offering sacrifices and trying to appease the gods and trying to make sure they just avoided stepping on whatever landmine or whatever that would make this particular god upset. And so they'd have festivals and sacrifices and whatnot. The Lord of Israel is different. Lord of Israel has no peer, has no real contender for the throne, is not in any way sharing power with any other deity, and moreover, is not petty or capricious, doesn't keep you guessing about what would not make him mad. He gives to the people Torah, the law, so that they know exactly what he wants. And he tells them exactly 
how to live in right relationship with the Lord. All the other peoples live in fear and trembling and hoping and wondering and like trying to read the, the tea leaves and the clouds and whatnot for like the cosmic hint dropping. Like a bunch of passive aggressive capricious gods up there that are gonna like maybe strike us with famine if we just say the wrong thing or don't do enough. And you're always wondering, have we done enough? The Lord doesn't keep you guessing. The Lord was gracious to Israel and gave the law, which is why it was considered this great gift, the teachings that showed the way of life and allowed for Israel to live at peace with their God. And so when they come to their own version of the flood story, you see, they were also a people who assumed a flood. They already knew about a catastrophic flood that was in their history, just like all the other peoples. And what they did, just like all the other peoples, was make sense of it. And so what we have that is authoritative for us in the scriptures is the authoritative sense-making of God's people around a thing from their memory. And all of this is being situated, by the way, in a prologue to the real story. You see, the real story of the Old Testament is the story of Abraham and his family. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the plot line that runs through the Old Testament, the story of Israel. Genesis 1 through 11 set the stage for that story. Creation, flood, Babel, scattering, and then the story begins. The writer of Genesis places the flood exactly at the halfway point between the creation of all things and the beginning of the story which is very similar to like the Sumerian king list, for example, which has a flood at the exact middle of its telling the story of its kings. And the kings that come before the flood live for like a really, really long time, hundreds, thousands of years, whatever. Just like the characters in the Bible that come before the flood, like Methuselah who lives 969 years. And then after the flood, they start to live more normal lifespans, right? That's the same thing we see and other sources from the ancient Near East. But what we see here in Genesis is an understanding of the flood as a cosmic event. In other words, it's a creation story. Or maybe more specifically, it's a, it's a decreation story. See, when God created the earth, if you read the Genesis 1 account of creation, what you get is a, is a depiction of an earth that looks something like a snow globe floating in a bathtub, where you get the earth, the dry land that is now, it's on the cosmic sea, right? If you remember the beginning, the darkness was on the face of the deep, right? The deep is the cosmic sea, and God separates the waters above from the waters below. How does he do that on day two? He puts a dome, a firmament in the sky that separate the waters above from the waters below. And it was understood in the ancient world that there were waters above and waters below. Meaning, if you look up at the sky, why is it blue? Because there's a big ocean up there over the snow globe dome. Why does it rain? Because it leaks, right? Why does it flood? because the windows of the heavens were opened, says Genesis. The floodgates, the windows of the heavens were opened. You see the snow globe dome that has a sea above it breaks. And what God creates on day two of Genesis one, God undoes here in the flood. 
And it says the waters came down because the doors of the heavens were open. And it says the waters came up because remember the snow globe's floating on a bathtub and there's a cosmic sea below as well. So you're flooding from the basement, you're flooding from the attic. And it's back to the pre-creation state. You see, the God of Genesis, the creator God, is one who brings order out of the chaos. And the creation story is this divine ordering of all of reality that cuts through chaos and finds a place and puts everything in its right place and everything's living in right relationship to God and everything else. God orders the chaos. Yet what begins to happen as the serpent that we meet, remember, remember the serpent, that little creepy crawly problem in this good creation that God makes who then deceives the people and they fall and they go the wrong way. And then you get stories like Cain and Abel and you start to see the seed of the serpent gets, starts to get real traction. And then this human story takes this really bad turn. And then all of a sudden you've got creation disordered in a major way, even to the point where just before the flood story, you even get this weird mention of a group of people called the Nephilim, which are like the giants, where it says the sons of, the God, of God had come down and were like, having relations with the daughters of humanity. And there were these like sort of semi-demigod type things. Really weird to be finding that kind of stuff in the Bible. Very common if you're reading Greek mythology or whatever, but not what you expect to find in the Bible. But the picture is that things that belong in the divine realm and things that belong in the earthly realm are inappropriately mixing and lines have been crossed and this problem that has been introduced with the serpent sort of turning things in the wrong direction, human beings following suit, now it's all, all breaking loose and everything's wrong. And God is looking upon the situation and he's saying, there's just chaos and wickedness everywhere. It's time to start over with creation, new creation. So how do you do new creation? Well, you wipe out the old one. Erase the board, start over. And the description we get of the flood in Noah corresponds directly to the creation story where what God built in creation, God dismantles in the flood. To where now you're back to the pre-creation state of the cosmic sea and this little boat, which is actually a huge boat as boats go. It would have been the biggest boat still ever built and not seaworthy. But you've got this boat that holds eight people and all the animals. And God is going to start over in new creation with that. And that's how the story goes. The story is closely tied and very importantly tied to both creation and the Exodus. God is the creator and God is the liberator. It's tied to the creation story as for all the reasons I just said. It's tied to the Exodus story in a really important way because that's going to be another story where the people who are on the opposite side of God get drowned in big waters as God carries people through miraculously some other way. And interestingly, Moses, who leads that Exodus, is delivered himself in water. Do you remember that story when he's in a basket? There's this Hebrew word for that basket, teva that appears there and only one other time in the Bible. And it's the word ark. Same thing. Noah's ark and Moses' basket are the same word. And it doesn't come anywhere else. See, this is a story of new creation. 
Exodus is a story of new creation where the waters are parted and the dry land appears and God leads the people through the dry land and then chaos crashes on all that opposes God. And what we'll get as we read through the story as well is that God will continue to do this kind of thing. And if you read all the way through to 1 Peter, you'll even see him say that the waters prefigure baptism for us as we're brought through in Jesus and delivered from destruction through him. But the Noah story, let's not get away from it. The Noah story keeps going beyond what we read. We read the first half. It would have taken all day to read the whole thing, but you know how it ends, right? The waters subside. God says, go off the boat. I brought it with me here so I can read it for you. But they go off the boat and God makes a promise to Noah. He says, I'm never again going to curse the ground because of humankind. And then you kind of skip down and he goes back and now you've got Noah as a new Adam, right? Where he's saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You've got Noah again as this new Adam figure. God's going to start over with creation and this time do it with Noah. And he says this, he says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. It's a beautiful end to a horrific story where God makes this promise to never again do what he just did. And he gives this sign of the bow. Now, many of you have probably read the same children's Bible that I've read and whatever, and you, and you, you read the bow, and it's, it's like the bow, like the bow and arrow, right? Aiming back up into the sky. It's, it's the, the sort of this self-malediction, if you want to use that. The one offering the covenant says, look, if I break this, may my own death be upon my head. I, that's, that's, a, that's one beautiful image of God saying, like, may it ever be so with me should I break this. It's a way of saying I'm, I'm good for my word. But another, other scholars will also point out another important piece, I think, of the symbolism. And that is, think of the shape of the bow, the dome in the sky. What is it that God made on day two? to separate the waters above from the waters below? What is it that came crashing down in the act of decreation but the dome? And yet God gives a sign of a new dome as a mark that that will never, ever, ever happen again. The sign is a picture of the thing promised as much as it is also a promise that God is good to keep his word. And when Jesus comes on the scene, what we get is a new Noah. Remember, Noah's a new Adam. 
And this is a theme that repeats throughout the scriptures where God created in humanity and Adam and Eve, and there they are, and they have this job, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Go make culture, make a world, build out a world that's great. And then we know that story goes wrong. And then God says, all right, I'm going to start again. And so he gets Noah, and he says, now you be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then we'll even see Noah begets a son in his image. The same way Adam begat Seth, the same way God begat Adam. And we see this new thing where God starts over by choosing humanity and doing it through human beings. And what we'll see again is he'll do it again in Abraham. We'll see him again, he'll do it in Moses. We'll see him again, he'll do it in, in David as the story continues to progress and get more complicated. And ultimately, that story moves forward to a day when God says, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to do this myself. Humanity has to do it so I'll become one of them. And Jesus steps into the story as both God and human being to be the new Adam, to be the new Noah, to be the new Moses, to be the new David, to be the new human in whom God will make all things new. But when God does it in Jesus, there's no catastrophic flood. There are simply the waters of baptism that remind us that he is our ark. That remind us that he is the one who holds us and saves us. He is the human being who comes in the image of God most pristinely to show us what God is like, to show us who we are, to enter the world and to carry to completion the story that God began writing so long ago, to which God's children have been bearing witness throughout ages and ages and ages, telling the story inspired by the Spirit. And then here comes one who is God in person in our world, anointed by the Spirit. Spirit, not just inspired by the Spirit. And what we get is the Word of God made flesh who dwelt among us. Incarnate Word. God who came to be the human being creation needed from day one. And he lived the life and he died the death and he was raised to new life from the belly of the grave. And he took his throne at the right hand of God and he poured out the spirit on us so that as we are joined to him, as we pass with him through the waters of our floody baptism into a world of new creation, that we might go bathed in his life, headed toward a world made right. Now we will pass through a catastrophe individually because our path to life goes through the grave. But the world will never again know the kind of destruction that's depicted here in this story of Noah because God has made a promise. And for you and for me, as we seek to inhabit this story, as we seek to live as people who love God, who love Jesus, who are living this life, and who are able to actually love a Bible that's maybe more complicated and old and, you know, complicated than what we might have thought. It is rich, friends. It is so rich. That's why I made you a mixtape. because we're going to do this together this summer. And I'll be away for a little bit. Cindy will be here to pick it up. 
you know you're in capable hands. It's gonna be, I think it'll be fun, um, but hopefully a whole lot more than fun because I believe God meets us in these places and God calls us to trust in him more than we trust in what we think we've got figured out. And God invites us into the world to join him, right? It's, it's gonna be a fun journey this summer. My prayer is that as we do this, that it's not just fun, but it's sanctifying. That God will remake us through this to be people of trust, people of love, people of biblical literacy and knowledge, and people who are resting more deeply in Jesus who holds us, even when we don't know everything, and who guides us into the world to join him in his great project of making all things new through love. That's my prayer for us. Join me in it now, if you would. God, we give our lives to you. We need you. We love you. We thank you that we can just open your Bible and you, you can speak directly to our hearts. And we don't need people with PhDs to make that real for us. We also thank you that you've given us people with training who write books and who teach classes, people who dig in the dirt, people who actually study things and help us have a more robust understanding of what you've actually given us in the Bible that help us know how to, with wisdom, actually pull it toward our lives and inhabit it as the story of your people, the story of these people now gathered around Jesus. So would you guide us and sustain us and carry us forward into this week, remade in your likeness, strengthened in your presence? Would you move us to love you more and to love our neighbors as ourselves? Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.